do is part two of a sermon series that we started last week. We were talking about all things new. With all the new things happening in our church and all the new things going on in our world and many of your lives, we, did, we started a series last week called All Things New. Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians in the back of the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll open up that passage of scripture together. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to open your word together. And uh, God, I just pray that as we gather together as believers, that hearts would already be encouraged from our time of worship. I pray it's awesome to be able to see each other's faces today. And I pray you'd fill our hearts and encourage our souls from that. I pray as we open up the scripture, God, that you would, if there's anybody here who's not a new creation, that doesn't know what it is to have a new beginning with you, that you'd give them that today. And I pray if there are those that do know you, those that do know you, I pray would be so encouraged by the other truths we're going to see and would rejoice in their salvation, and you would cause us to live differently, that this city would ultimately be different because of people that are changed. God, change us as we open your word. Make us different. And God, you know what you want me to say to this group that was different from the last service, and I pray that you'd put those words in my heart in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, like I mentioned last week, we started this series called All Things New, and we were looking at God's new mercies in the book of Lamentations, and today we're going back to the same idea that we like new stuff. We're all fascinated with new things. If you remember last week, I mentioned that if you were ever in a student in school that was there for a long time and the new kid came, there's a fascination with the new kid because it's a mystery. Like, who are they? You don't know their story. Or I talked about how we camp out to buy a cell phone and the iPhone comes out or there's a new product that we like new stuff. And, and maybe you remember that I said, maybe, just maybe the reason we're so fascinated with the new isn't because marketing people can get inside our heads. It's not just because they know what scratches the itch of buying something else, but maybe it's because we've all been made in the image of God, and God, while he's the ancient of days, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, continually is doing a new thing. And you see it in the very beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, called the book of beginnings, the very first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God created. And then everything you see after that is new stuff. He created the heaven and the earth. There was no heavens before. There was no earth before. He created them out of nothing. And then he created fish. And think about that. He created goldfish and catfish. And he created dolphins. He's creative God. He created animals. Think about the giraffe for a minute. What made him think to create an animal with an eight-foot neck and that blood would pump up its neck into its brain? That is creative. He's a creative God. He keeps making new things. Then he created a person. And it was not good for that person to be alone. He created another person. Then he created marriage. And he sanctified marriage between a man and a woman. And he created all these things. And you think, well, yeah, that was the beginning of the Bible. But you jump to the end of the Bible, the very last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, towards the end of the Bible, it's God seated on his throne, says, I'm making everything new. You're not done making new stuff. And what we see is that everything from the very beginning of the Bible until time that we haven't even experienced yet, God's doing new stuff. So from cover to cover in the Bible, you see him doing a new thing. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 19. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now, for those of you who've read your Bible before, you may know that's 700 years before he decided to send his son to put on flesh and to come here and to die for your sins. And my, that was the first time he did that, by the way. And also in the Bible, you'll see he makes a new creation. He has new mercies, amen? He re- we're going to talk about next week how he renews our mind, gives us a new mind. We see a new covenant, a new spirit, a new heart, a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth. He's continually doing these new things all throughout the scripture, new commandments he gives us. He commands us to sing a new song. Don't just keep singing the old songs. It's awesome to sing the Psalms that have been around for a long time, by the way, longer than most of the hymns you know. 
all the hymns, you know. But he says sing a new song because he keeps doing a new thing. And one of the most fascinating things he does is takes us who already exist and makes us into a new creation. And you think about how fascinating a new creation is. We love new creations at our church. I know this to be true because think about every time a child is born, there's a new creation. And you just go over to our nursery, there are a lot of babies being born at this church. And most of them are cute, by the way. Yours is cute, okay? Your baby's cute. Most of us love babies. They smell good. Every time you see a baby be born, you're seeing a new creation. And God keeps doing that. And it's not just people even. It's even animals. I've been telling my wife lately I want us to get a, a new dog because... The dog that we have, I pled for her to let us have this dog come into our house. I wanted a dog, and the dog chose her. The dog doesn't even come to me. Like, the dog will be with me if I'm the only one at the house. If anyone else comes, I'm, go- I'm old news. And so I'm going to pick a new dog. I'm going to show him. And so what I've been doing lately, and I know it's a bad idea. I know, that, I know that puppies leave new creations of their own in the middle of the living room floor. I know they chew stuff up. I know at our stage of life, we don't need another thing to take care of at this moment. I understand all of that. But I'll text my wife regularly, almost daily, pictures of puppies. For example, exactly. Do you know what my text messages say when I send pictures like this? They say things like, will you love me? Can I come live at your house? And I just send these these pictures over and over again. Now, if you don't like puppies, you got problems, okay? And we offer pastoral counseling for that. Puppy, everyone loves puppies. Everyone loves new creation. There's another way that you see that we love new creation as human beings is that we're made in the image of God. So not only do we love creation and new creation, but we make it. In fact, some of you probably have patents in your names. I know we live in the science industry and I've met many of you before. Some of you have invented things. Some things get invented. They're awesome and they make mankind better. It's a better experience for everybody. Some things are just weird. And I've seen a few of those weird things on my internet researching this week, like a pair of shoes that I saw this week. Have you ever seen these before? It's the animal claw shoe. See the bottom of that? And I just thought to myself when I saw that, why? Why do you want, this does not make you jump any higher, it does not make you run any faster. However, I thought, here's what it could do. If I bought a pair of these shoes, I could really weird my neighbors out when it rains outside. I'm walking out in front of their house, and the neighbor will be on me like, are you a freak? You Sasquatch, you're like, what are you running around outside of my house for? I saw another thing that was a new creation based on social media. It was a shower curtain. I don't know if you've seen these before or not, but the social media shower curtain. I thought, what is the status update on that? Honey, there's no more hot water. Like, what do you say on this thing? Another one was some Band-Aids. Bacon is now really popular, and they put it with Band-Aids. There's bacon Band-Aids now. Here's my problem with this one. I have kids, and I know kids. Band-Aids are supposed to help with wounds. I'm pretty confident someone's getting bit if they wear one of these things. That's not, a, that's not, in my opinion, a great idea, but it is a new creation, and we can make new creations. Today we're going to talk about not making new creations, not even enjoying new creations. Today we're going to talk about what it means to be a new creation. We're really going to focus on one verse, and we're going to go phrase by phrase through this verse, but it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17, and it says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old is gone, the new has come. And notice it doesn't say that you receive a new creation, that you have a new creation, that you are. He is a new creation. And so today I want to ask the question, what does it mean not to have, to know about, What does that mean to be a new creation? 
If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians. I'm going to read more than just that verse so you get the context. This is one of those verses that's easy to take out of context. So if you have a Bible and you haven't turned there already, I hope you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and notice this. You can actually see your Bible. Amen. What's happening in 2 Corinthians, if there's ever been a church that would give any church hope, it doesn't matter how bad things are going in a church. If you want some hope, look at the church in Corinth. Because the first letter to the Corinthians is all about all the problems that are taking place. And if there was a church that had problems, it was the church of Corinth. If you just go through 1 Corinthians, what you'll see is in the very beginning, Paul says, you've got all these divisions. Some people follow Paul. Some people follow Cephas. Some people follow Apollos. Some of you even follow Jesus. <laughs> and Paul didn't plant that church so that people could follow him. He wanted people to follow Jesus. And so he rebukes them for their division because what God wants in a church is unity. And so he rebukes the Corinthians. And then you see, you get a little bit further into the book, and there's immorality happening in the church at Corinth that would even make the church in America blush. And you go on, there's false teachers, and there's problem after problem, there's doctrinal issues, there's all kinds of stuff happening. And Paul goes in 1 Corinthians, just dot, 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 bullet point, bullet point, all these things need to be addressed. And he's rebuking this church. And then there's a letter that we don't have. 2 Corinthians isn't actually the second letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is written only a few months after 1 Corinthians, but there was another letter in between. Some people get uncomfortable hearing that, but if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4, it gets alluded to. It was a really harsh letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians to rebuke them of their sin, and it caused them sorrow and pain, but he's glad that he wrote it because they turned back. There's hope. God is a God of second chances. And he's writing to the 2 Corinthians in their second chance, and he's talking about how he's coming to visit them. And what he's just been telling them about is his ministry to them and how he'd lay his life out for them and he'd give his life for them. And then I'm going to read to you verses 17 through 21, but we're going to hit that, that whole context there eventually today. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old is gone, new has come. All this is from God. Only God could do this. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We speak on his behalf as though God were making his appeal through us. And then he speaks to the Corinthians, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Then verse 21, an amazing verse, one verse, the whole gospel is in this verse. God made him, talking about Jesus, who had no sin, to not be, or not do, not have, but to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here you've got this guy, Paul, writing this letter. Paul, as a guy who knows what it is to be one way and then to be another way, who knows what it is to be a new creation, who's writing this letter to people, living on a second chance, who know what it is to be one way, then to be made another about being a new creation. Here's Paul, a guy who was a persecutor of the church, thought Jesus was a phony, now becomes a proclaimer of the gospel and wants to see everybody else reconciled to Christ because of the work that God's done in his life connecting him to Jesus so that he could be changed. And it's happened in the Corinthians. And so he writes to them about what it is to be a new creation. And we see in this passage of Scripture that I just read to you at least three things that it means to be a new creation. The first thing that it means to be a new creation is it means to have a new beginning with God. 
It means to have a new beginning with God. The very word creation implies a beginning. I already mentioned to you babies. And you think about when babies are born. And it's awesome to see a baby. And they smell good. And most of them are cute. Not every baby's cute. Most of them are cute. But why is it so exciting? They're at the very beginning. Anything's possible at that point. When a baby's born, you don't know who they will become. You don't know what they will do. You don't know what job they'll have. You don't know who they'll marry. You don't know how they'll impact the rest of the world. You don't know who they'll have relationships with. You don't know where they're going to live. You don't know any. It's just all possible. And some of you have been to weddings. A wedding is a new beginning, if you think about it. Some of you have gone to weddings this summer. Maybe some of you have been married for some time. When you sit there and you watch that couple mesmerized with one another, just staring at each other, getting ready to go on their honeymoon, some of you think to yourself, they don't even know what they don't know. But some of you remember when you were at that stage and all the possibilities at that moment, everything that could be. And here we are at this church today, new chapter in the life of our church. I talked to one guy in the first service. He was at our church when we met in the living room. He was at our church after I promised we wouldn't be a club for Christians and we met at a country club. He was at our church at the movie theater and he was here today. I said, this is a fourth location. I told the first service, I have a friend who actually pastors a church he planted in New Orleans. They've had 13 locations in seven years. I was going to have him come here just so you could be like, man, we've got it easy. But here we are at a new place, a new beginning. Think about all the possibilities of what could be. Last week we talked about people's lives that have been changed throughout the nine years of our church and saw people that have been baptized and talked about stories of folks. And Think about who God could change. Think about how God might want to change your life. Our hope is that when you leave today that you go over to the cafeteria, it'll be like a lobby for us and that people will hang out there. And we've got plenty, you can hang out as long as you want. Think about the relationships that could happen. Think about the change that could happen in those moments. Think about where you might get involved. Think about how God may, you might be a different person two years from now, three years from now as a result of what happens here at this place, being a part, if you're here, you're part of our family picture, then you're part of this new beginning. New beginnings are exciting because of all the possibilities. And here what we're talking about in this passage of scripture is the ultimate new beginning, a new beginning with God. Go back to the passage and see what Paul says. Therefore, verse 17, the verse we focus in on, therefore, anytime you study the Bible, you can't just start with the word therefore. You've always got to ask yourself the question, what is the therefore located in this position for? What is the therefore there for? And always connects us back to something else. The therefore in verse 17 here connects us back to verse 14. But so you understand the context of verse 14, I'm also going to read you verse 13. If you have a Bible, you look back, you can see it. See what it says. It says, if we're out of our mind. Some people were accusing Paul of being crazy. He says, if we're out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. And what Paul's saying there is this, that, that he and his partners in the ministry are living out the two greatest commandments, love God, love people. If we're out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. It's because we love God so much. If we're in our right mind, it's because we're pouring our lives out for you. But why do we do this? And this is what verse 17 is connected to, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. That one verse is the gospel. One died for all. It's talking about Jesus Christ, that Jesus, the God-man, one man, died for all of humanity. And all those who are in Christ then die, die to sin, die to self. The therefore in verse 17 ties us back to verse 14, which is the gospel. The gospel is how a new creation is even possible. But take it to the next phrase. Therefore, next phrase, if anyone, if anyone. Anyone, by the way, in the Greek means anyone. So it includes the Corinthians. 
Think about that for a minute. I already told you they've got some problems. You go back to 1 Corinthians and you read at the very beginning, they've got division in the church. So you've got one guy saying he follows Cephas, got one guy saying, oh, Paul baptized me, and got one guy saying, Apollos, he's my guy. You've got all these people saying these different things. There's division in the church because of this. He rebukes them. Change. Anyway, they, they're included. If you go to chapter 5, I told you there's immorality in there that would make even the American church blush. Go to chapter 5. There's a guy in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians who's dating his father's wife. We don't know if that's his mom, his stepmom, what the situation is in all of that. But here's the problem. The church is acting like it's okay. Oh, what a cute couple. You guys are so sweet together. And Paul writes and he says, hey, I, I told, you don't judge people outside the church, but you do judge people inside the church. Read 1 Corinthians 5. If you think that's my words, read it. You are supposed to judge people. And he's saying, you rebuke, you kick that guy out of the church, you cast him over to Satan. They don't like hearing that. And the, certainly the couple didn't like hearing that. He's rebuking their, they got problems. If you want to summarize the problems, the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me read you a couple of verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says this, verse 9. Do you not know, this is the Bible by the way, don't send me an email about this one. Send it to Paul. Do you not know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Parentheses, this is me. Uh, don't be deceived by infomercials that speak in the name of tolerance. Don't be deceived because your coworker says, this is what's true. Don't be deceived because some pop song glorifies sin in the name of freedom. Amen. Don't be deceived. Here's what Paul says. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's tough. But here's the thing. Paul's not talking about all those people out there that we need to go reach. This is a roll call for the church in Corinth. Paul's not saying, though, to these people, all the adulterers, please stand up. If you happen to be a swindler, raise your hand. All the slanderers. But he knows that's who's in the church. The glorious part of 1 Corinthians 6 is the next verse. Verse 11. It says this. And that is what some of you, not are, were. You were adulterers. You were homosexual offenders. You were swindlers and slanderers and greedy and all of this stuff that he listed. But now you're a new creation. How did that happen? What does it mean to be in Christ? Look at the next part of the verse. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead can make you a new creation. Corinthians. But who can he make a new creation? Go back to verse 17. If anyone, and Paul knows it because it's happened in his own life. Do you know what Paul says about his own life? Paul, if you don't know Paul's story, Paul was a guy, he was putting Christians in jail and having them killed. He, you might think you're pretty bad, let me tell you what the Bible says, and so this isn't somebody's opinion. The Bible says, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says this. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Everybody should buy into this one. I'm the worst sinner ever. So I don't know how bad you are, but the best shot you got is second place. Paul's the worst. By the way, he writes the majority of the New Testament. Do you know why? Because he's not a murderer, 
He's not a persecutor of the church. He was a murderer. He was a persecutor of the church, but he was washed. He was sanctified. He was justified. He was cleansed. He is a new creation. He was given a new beginning, a new beginning with God. And that's what it means to be a new creation is that if anyone, that's Paul, that's the Corinthians, that's you see people all throughout the Gospels. You see Jesus keeps doing this. We were doing a series on Mark before we started doing the All Things New series, and you start thinking about what the encounters were that Jesus had in the book of Mark and how many new beginnings he gives. I love that one story where Jesus is preaching and a guy gets lowered through the ceiling tiles. So this, this guy can't walk. His four friends climb up on top of this house. They drop this guy in front of Jesus while he's teaching, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. But so you know I can forgive sins, get up and walk. That was a new beginning. One of my favorite stories in Mark is what happens right after that. When Jesus goes walking out of that house, everybody's pumped about Jesus at that point. He can call anybody to come be one of his followers. Most of us would pick some, you know, sports star, Michael Phelps. You're going to pick some brilliant guy, some, you know, scholar of some sort. You're going to pick some celebrity, some politician, whoever. He goes to one of the most despised people in culture, a tax collector, Levi. He says, hey, come be one of my closest friends. Not just disciple, not just follower. You come be one of my 12 closest guys. He's given that man a new beginning. You see, throughout all the Gospels, you see leper, a leper comes to Jesus, he heals the leper, it's a new beginning. You see in John, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible is in John chapter 8, where Jesus is teaching again, and some men bring a woman who's been caught in the very act of adultery. What perverts? How do you catch someone in the act of adultery? And so they grab this woman, she's half naked, Jesus is teaching in a religious setting, people aren't expecting that, a half naked woman gets brought up, and they've got stones in their hands because of what the Bible says. You're caught in adultery. And says, what are you going to do, Jesus? You going to condemn her? Jesus starts writing in the sand. No one knows what Jesus wrote. He wrote the Ten Commandments. Did he write some grace statement? We don't know. But he says the statement, like, he who's without sin cast the first stone. Remember, they're holding stones in their hands. And then John tells us, one by one, they dropped their stones and they went away. But then it says, the oldest first. I love that about the book of John. And I don't know why it says the oldest first, but I think it's because the longer you've been around, the more sin you've done, the more aware of your sin you should be. And so the oldest dropped their stones. They walked away, and he looks at the woman, and he says, does no one condemn you? She said, no, no one. She says, then neither do I condemn you. Now, time out. There was one guy there that had no sin. There was one guy who could condemn her. And it was Jesus, and he didn't. He gave a new beginning. Last week I told you stories of people in our church. I told you about Gino, the guy that I met at the South Point food court and how he came to Christ at our Christmas Eve service. And he sent me an email this week. I think it actually told me as he came to Christ watching the Christmas Eve service online. So thank you volunteers who helped get the sermons online. He was watching it online, came to Christ. God's done a work in his life. Now he's serving in our church and having an impact on other people's lives and I told you about Michelle who walked an aisle at our church. We didn't even hardly ever do that at the theater. Had people come down the aisle. She came down the aisle, trusted Christ as her Savior, then started to share some of our, her story with our church. I told you about a Muslim guy named Manny. And how Manny came to our church for about a year and didn't like a lot of the stuff that I said and started a relationship with Jesus Christ. Each one of those people has a different story. Levi has a different story than the leper, than the guy who came through the ceiling tile then you, then Michelle, then Gino, but we all have a story. Then Paul, then me, then the Corinthians. But what did the passage say? 
if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old is gone, it's all done, it's all gone. The way that Psalm 103 says this, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your transgressions from you. It's all gone. If you're in Christ. So who's in Christ? That's really the question. And that's the central part of understanding this verse is what does it mean to be in Christ? Very simply, it means to be a Christian. Very simply, it means to come to the end of yourself. Very simply, it means what all those people have in common is they got to the point where they admitted they were failures in life. And that's what every Christian has in common. You come to the point where you realize you can't do it. You're not good enough. Your religion's not good enough. You can't clean up your act. You don't pay for the things you've done by doing good things. You come to the place where you realize the only one that was good enough was Jesus Christ. God's the only one that can reconcile you through his son, Jesus Christ. And so you have to have a relationship with Jesus be in Christ. And so the question is, if you come to the end of yourself, we all have a different story. I read a story online of a guy this week. His name was Jordan. It was on I Am Second if you want to watch it. But Jordan, he was a heroin addict, and he said that he was such a bad heroin addict that other heroin addicts didn't want to hang out with him. That's bad, by the way. And he said the reason why was because they were all confident that he was going to die. They didn't want to have to take him to the hospital, and then they get caught for their heroin addiction. He said, but what happened in his life, the turning point for him was that he went to jail one night, and he said, I'm in jail. I see these two guys fighting over a roll of toilet paper. One guy wants to use it as a pillow. The other guy wants to use it as he goes to the bathroom. And the realization for him was, I deserve to be here, but I don't belong here. Things are not as they should be. And you have a different story than he has. I bet most of you aren't going to come to that point watching two guys fight over a roll of toilet paper. And your story is probably going to be different than Manny's. And it's probably going to be different than Michelle's. And probably different than Gino's. And probably different than Corinthians. Probably different than Paul's. But it's for anyone. But everyone has to come to the point where they go, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And God uses different things in each one of our lives. For some of you, you just wonder, is there more? Is there more to life than this, than what I'm doing? And some of you have accomplished a lot. You hear even celebrities sometimes say, I've done this and I've accomplished this, but it seems like something's missing. Some of you feel like that. Some of you, your marriage starts to slip away, and all of a sudden God has your attention. He's getting you to that point like that guy was when he saw that roll of toilet paper. You've got to come to the end of yourself. For some of you, it's because you've got this low-lying guilt, and you just think you're supposed to live with that. And then you hear you could be a new creation. The old is gone. But you have to be in Christ. It's for anyone. question is, are you one of the if anyone's? If anyone is in Christ. And that statement in Christ takes us to the second thing it means to be a new creation. Not only do you get a new beginning, but to be in Christ means you get a new identity. A new identity in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, is an identity statement. Now, if you think about our identity, most of us, when we think about our identity, we talk about the things that we do. If we're out in the cafeteria after the service, I've never met you before, and you walk up, you tell me who you are, I say, hey, I'm Scott. And you say, what do you do? And I say, I am a pastor. Or you bump into somebody else, you say, what do you do? Hey, James, what is your name? I'm James, I'm James. What do you do? I am in marketing. I am a teacher. I am an IT manager, whatever it is that you do. You say what we do, but that's not who you are. That's what you do. So who are you? Well, you go, well, I'm... I'm in a church, and so I, I guess I'd say I am a Christian. That is a terrible title, just so you know. I almost wish we'd stop using the term Christian. It doesn't mean anything anymore. That's why. We've got Christian nations, Christian t-shirts, Christian candy I saw online. <laughs> How does candy become Christian? 
Someone infusing that with the Holy Spirit? If so, can you imagine what that would taste like? Woo, that is amazing candy. <laughs> what most people mean when they say that it's a Christian t-shirt is they put a Bible verse on it. Most people mean when they say Christian candy, they put a, a verse on some wrapper and they give it some cheesy name. That's what they mean. His candy, whatever it is. The term Christian, most of us, when we use it, we mean the same thing. I put a Bible verse on my life. I went to a church. I am a Christian. I'm not a Muslim, so I must be a Christian. I'm not Hindu. I must be Christian. I live in this nation. I must be Christian. Being Christian doesn't mean you were born in the South, by the way. It doesn't mean you go to a church. It means to be in Christ. You know what it is to be in Christ? In Christ doesn't mean that you're inside of Christ, like there's gas in your gas tank in your car, or like we're sitting in a school right now. It means you're grafted together like a branch is in a tree. You're united to Christ. That term Christian is only used three times in the Bible. It's never used by Jesus. It's never used by Paul. The phrase in Christ, in him, in the Lord is used 164 times just by Paul. So what is it to be in Christ? Well, it's an identity statement, and you get really the summary of it when you jump to the last verse that's in this passage of Scripture, and you see how the language comes out, that it's an identity language. It's not what you do It's who you are. Look at it in verse 21. Verse 21, many scholars call it the great exchange of what took place. God, the Father, made him, talking about Jesus, who had no sin. He lived a sinless life. He was God in the flesh, had no sin. Not to do sin on our behalf. To be sin for us. And so the question becomes, why would God the Father make his son become sin? The answer is because it's the only way. Look at the verse. So that, here's the reason, so that in him, there's that phrase, identity statement, in him we might not have, we might become the righteousness of God. I was trying to teach this to my kids last night. We were doing a little family devotions together as we were going to bed, which usually is just mayhem. We're trying to do something to get their attention with it. And so we did a little object lesson. And I didn't do this on the first service, and so it may go really poorly. There's that disclaimer. But it's like bonus material, like the uncut stuff for the second service. I've asked my daughter to come. So Ava, will you come up here, bring those little things that we ran to CVS and got between the services? Benefit of living by so many drugstores, by the way. This is my daughter, Ava. Ava, come on up here. Oh, yeah, thank you, Ava. And so we bought a couple items. This is what we could come up with, (laughs) being over there. To represent sin and evil, we've got Darth Vader. I figured most of you probably weren't huge fans. Anakin was there. I was like, I don't know. Probably go with Darth Vader. So we went Darth Vader. So that's everything wicked, evil, every time you've disobeyed mom and dad, represented right there. (laughs) And 1 Corinthians and all the adultery and all the slander and all the swindling and all that stuff represented by Darth Vader. And we took flowers that would represent new life. This is righteous. This is everything that's right. But what has to happen in order for you to be in Christ is you have to give me that and I have to give you this, which is new life. It's a new creation. The problem with the analogy is she can have it. She doesn't become it. We actually become the new creation. But then I was telling my kids, the bad part is we oftentimes forget That's why Jesus had to pay on the cross, because he became sin. That's why his father forsook him on the cross. My God, my God, why do you forsake me? That's why he turned his face from the sun. That's why darkness covered the earth. 
because Jesus became sin so that we could become righteous. Thank you for helping me show everybody. Appreciate it, Ava. And the point I wanted them to get is that what happens on the cross is more than a pardon. Many times when Christians talk about the cross, we just talk about our forgiveness. It's way more than just forgiveness. It's way more, a pardon, you think about the president will pardon, probably at the end of his presidency, I think it's a tradition, every president pardons several prisoners at the end of their presidency, and so somebody will be a murderer, and then they don't have to serve the rest of their sentence, or they'll be a drug trafficker, they don't have to serve the rest of their sentence, they're let out for whatever reason, some story, somebody knew somebody, whatever ended up happening, they get out. Now, they're still murderers. They're still drug traffickers. They've just been forgiven their debt, which is oftentimes how we talk about the cross. We didn't just receive a pardon at the cross. We became perfection. That is your identity. So that means this. That means the Corinthians that were adulterers, it's not that they're now ex-adulterers. The Corinthians that were homosexual offenders are not just ex-homosexual offenders. The Corinthians that were murderers or slanderers or swindlers are the righteousness of God. Because they were washed, they were cleansed, they were justified, they were sanctified. Which means for you this, if you're in Christ, we talked last week about abortion a little bit. You had an abortion, one in three women have had abortions. You're not an ex-abortionist or a murderer. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ... That means if you're, you know, you're a liar, you were a swindler, whatever it was, when he looks at you, he sees that is your identity, that is who you are, that you are in Christ. He sees perfection. Not just a pardon, not just he decided to look the other way, not just that you're forgiven, but because of what Christ took on the cross when he became your sin, you've become righteous. You're cleansed. You're washed. You are forgiven. You are loved. You receive grace. That is your identity. When we started our church, Oh, about nine years ago at the theater. One of the first sermon series we did was out of the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters of Ephesians is all about your identity in Christ. You can study that on your own. The next three chapters is all about how you live in light of that. And we did a series we called The Born Identity. It was a spoof on one of my favorite movie series. It was The Born Identity by, with Matt Damon, Jason Bourne. If you're a kid, I'm not telling you you should go watch. Don't say to your parents, the pastor watches it. No, don't do that. <laughs> but it's a great movie. And when we started the series, I remember we played one of my favorite clips in the whole series, the movie that was back in 2002 when the first one came out, and Matt Damon is sitting in a diner with a woman, and he doesn't know her, he doesn't even know who he is. And he says this statement to her, he says, why is it that I know all the license plates, the cars in the parking lot? Like normal people don't just think of that. He says, why is it that I know the best place to find a gun is in the cab of the gray truck out in the parking lot? Why is it that I know that the guy at the counter is 200 pounds and he can handle himself? Why is it that I know that I can run a half mile at full speed, at this altitude. And I think, you know the altitude? At this altitude, before my hands start to shake. But then he says, but I don't know who I am. And we did that sermon series about nine years ago. I don't know if you saw the box office or not, but Jason Bourne still doesn't know who he is. (laughs) There's a new one that just came out. And the reality is that's what's true for most of us as Christians as well. We still don't know our identity. We're in Christ We don't realize what it means to be in Christ. That Just look at what Ephesians says. That you were chosen before the foundations of the world in him. You were chosen to be seen in him. There's that phrase again. That you were adopted into his family. He picked you to be one of his children. John tells us that if we believe in him, we have the right to be called children of God. 
Peter tells us that we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. In him, but you just stay in Ephesians. And in Ephesians, it says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. He's made us alive. In him, that we are without hope and without God. But guess where we get hope? It's from him. Talk about reconciliation, the end of chapter 2. You see the way that some Christians act towards one another in different races, one's Jew, one's Gentile, black and white. That's all been broken down through the cross. We're just, if we're in him, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. He's changed all of that. But it's not just so you can know it and feel good about it. I hope, my, one of my hopes for you is if you're a believer in Jesus, that will overflow in your heart today and you will rejoice in your salvation and realize what your identity is, but there's more to it than just that. It's the third thing that we see in this passage of what it means to be a new creation. You get a new beginning with God, you receive a new identity in Christ, but you live a new way of life. And that's why I read to you verses eight, 18 through 21. Because that's what Paul talks about. Remember back in verse 13. Verse 17 is connected to verse 14. Verse 13 is the context of verse 14. In verse 13 it said, if we're out of our mind, people thought Paul was crazy. And it wasn't because he just said weird stuff. It wasn't because he heard voices no one else heard or saw things no one else saw. It's because he lived a way that most people didn't live. He lived selflessly. He poured his life out for the sake of God. He thought that God's love was better than his life. He was willing to die for Christ because it says for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And it's because of his love, he lived this life that was so countercultural. And you think about the way that we live and who it is that we say that we follow as believers in Jesus. We live in this culture that says, look out for number one. Jesus says the last will be first. We live in a culture where we get a claim if we like have a big department we manage. We have a bunch of people that serve us, that do things that we tell them to do. But we follow a Savior who didn't come to be served, but to serve. And give his life as a ransom for many. We live in a place that says, look out for number one. We follow a Savior who says, Matthew chapter 5. Read Matthew chapter 5. You want to see backwards living. It's what our ministry, Celebrate Recovery, is all founded on, is the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5. We say, look out for number one. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So you got to get yours. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who mourn. It's backwards. And so Paul's living that way. People think he's nuts. Why does he do it? Verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. Controls him. That word is like a pressure that moves you to action. I'm compelled. I'm pushed to action. I have to live this way. Why? What is the motive? Go back. It's the only motive that will give you true freedom. It's Christ's love. We do a lot of things for a lot of different reasons. Let me ask you this question. Why do you do what you do? And I'm not talking about sin. Forget sin for a minute. Forget the selfish things you do. Why do you do the good things you do? Why do you do the things that someone would praise you for? Why do you serve at this church? It's like 60-some percent of adults serve at the church. Why do you serve at the church? Why do some people go on the mission field? Why do some people want to work? Why do you share the gospel with your neighbor? Why do you pick up trash on your way in? Why, do you, why are you a nice guy? Because a lot of Christians do a lot of good things for a lot of bad reasons. A lot of people do it because of guilt. I don't get some good things done, but you're missing out on why it's happening. A lot of people do stuff because of shame. I was so bad. I just got to undo some of the bad stuff with the good things that I do. Some people do it out of fear. Some people do it trying to get other people's approval. Some people, there's just all kinds of reasons, bad reasons that we do stuff. The only one that brings true freedom is this one. Now, some people will say, immature Christians, you'll oftentimes hear say, and they might have been Christians for a long time, but they'll say, well, I'm free. I do what I want. A lot of times they'll flaunt the things that they do and say, I do what I want. Let me tell you something. Newsflash, little bonus material. You're in bondage to your wants. And your wanter's broken because you live here. 
The real freedom comes when you're motivated by the love of Christ because when you're motivated by the love of Christ, here's what happens. You don't have to prove anything. You're so secure in how loved you are being in Christ and understanding your identity that you're secure so you're not trying to prove anything. But also, when you do things that other people perceive as sacrifice, what loss is that to you? Because you've been given so much in the love of Christ and no one can take that from you. Read Romans 8. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. If you lose every possession, Paul's, if I lose my life, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. What does he say when he says the gospel? The love of Christ compels me, for one died, and therefore all died. But the dude's alive when he writes this. He's not physically dead. He's saying he's died to sin. He's died to self because he's been crucified with Christ. Why does he do it? He's following the example of his Savior, Philippians chapter 2, who became obedient to death, even death on a cross for you and for me. And so that's why he says, if we're out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our minds, it's for your sake. If we love God and we love people and love motivates us to live what kind of life? Well, that's where verses 18 through 20 come in. And you read verses 18 through 20, and let me point this out to you before I read it to you again. Five times in three verses, we're going to see the word reconciliation, either in noun form or verb form. And what Paul's saying is he's been reconciled, so he's going to live a reconciled life. And we'll talk about what that means. Look at it. Verse 18. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old is gone, new has come. Verse 18, all this is from God. Only God can do this. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He handed us this gift of this ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. His mouthpieces speak on his behalf, represent him in this place. As though God were making his appeal through us. And then he makes an appeal to the Corinthians. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then he gives that verse, verse 21, the message of reconciliation. That's the picture of the gospel. And that one verse, reconciliation, the great exchange that takes place. You take our, I'll take. So what does it mean to live a reconciled life? Well, it means more than this. It means more than you telling someone how they can know Jesus Christ as their Savior and be reconciled to God. It's more than just saying the words. It's living out reconciliation, being reconciled with other people. The Bible says to do whatever you can do to live at peace with others. Now, you can't control other people. I'm not telling you if you're in a situation that's an abusive situation that you should keep being abused. And I'm not saying that. But whatever's in your power to live at peace with someone, you live at peace. And that's why as a church, when we have members that sin, we go after them. We don't say, oh, that's, they must have gone to a different church. No. We pursue them because we want to confront the sin so they can be reconciled back to God because that's a picture of the gospel. That's what a community does. And so you know people that are in sin, maybe in your small group, different places, so you go to them and you say, hey, no, come back, come back. This is better. There's a different way. There's a better way. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to confront that couple that's in sin. This is living reconciliation. That's why we see marriages that are falling apart. So, oh, yeah, maybe you just need to start over. No, we say, you fight to reconcile this marriage. It's living out reconciliation. It is why we want to share the gospel with lost people so they can be reconciled to God because we've been reconciled, but we live it out. We don't just say it. Reconciled people live reconciled lives. It's like a guy that I read about this week on the internet. His name was Ulysses Slaughter, and his nickname is Butch. And he tells the story of uh, when he was 12 years old. He was sitting in an apartment that they lived in in the south side of Chicago, and his mom was arguing with his dad, 
and that was a normal part of his growing up. Domestic violence was a regular part of their life, but it got really bad. He was laying there in bed as a 12-year-old, and I heard my dad say to my mom, I'm going to kill you. And the mom said back, kill me. And he did. He shot her twice. He said, I came out, opened my door of my bedroom, and I saw my mom there dying. And then as a 13-year-old, the next year, he was the key witness in his dad's trial. And he talked about how much he hated his dad. He actually wrote a book, which I have not read yet, but I'll just share with you the book if you wanted to look it up. But it's, uh, Dear Daddy, I Hate You, Letters to My Mother's Killer. And he talks about the anger that he had towards his dad. He shares in the story that I read online how he hadn't seen his dad from the time he was 54 for about 20 years. But he'd always purposed in his heart that he was going to kill his dad. Even before the dad killed the mom, he had seen her be abused by him. And he said, I'm going to kill that man one day. And one day, kind of spur of the moment, he decided he was going to go. He went to his dad's house. And his intention was not a conversation. It was not forgiveness. He said, I had someone else knock on the door And when I saw him, I was going to kill him. But he said, when his dad came to the door, essentially he said, God melted my heart. And he had feelings towards his dad he had never had before. Compassion and sympathy. Even a little bit of forgiveness. And they didn't reconcile in that moment. So we talked about forgiveness before as a church. And sometimes we get this idea that forgiveness is something that just happens in this magical moment. Oftentimes forgiveness is a process. It can take a long time to forgive somebody. It didn't happen in that moment, but they did reconcile. Now, when we hear that story, you know what we naturally do? We naturally think of the place of the 12-year-old boy. But when you think about the gospel, let me tell you something. You are not the 12-year-old boy in that story. You killed God's son. It was your sin that put him on the cross. You were his enemy. Romans 5.8, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. God's work was that he Well, he was the one that was wronged. He's the one that made the sacrifice. He's the one that was abused. He's the one that was abandoned. He's the one that was forsaken, was doing it for you so that you could be reconciled. And reconciled people reconcile with and for other people. That's what it is to live a new way of life. That's the ministry you've been given. And each one of us does it differently based on our gifting, based on where God's placed us, who the relationships are, what life story you have, and we all have a different story. The question is, are you one of the if anyone's? Are you in Christ? Do you have a new identity in Christ? And you have a new way of living life. My hope for you today is this. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that today will be the day of salvation for you. That you'll come to the place where you realize, I can't do this on my own. And maybe you're at a terrible spot. Maybe there's bad circumstances in your life. Or maybe you just wonder if there's something more. And there is. You can be a new creation. The Bible says that what you need to do, though, is to believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you will be saved. You will be in Christ. Those of you who are in Christ, you have an identity. Then live according to that identity. What does that mean? Be a reconciler. You've been reconciled and you can sacrifice and you can serve and you can pour your life out and you don't lose anything because of all that you've been given. If you do it because of love, that's real freedom. And I hope for you that you will live in freedom if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. And If you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior today, then in a second I want to pray a prayer 
that is based on that passage in Romans chapter 10 where it says, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you will be saved, then I'm just going to ask you to pray that prayer with me. It can be in your heart. It can be in this room. It can be if you're watching over in the cafeteria in the video cafe or if you're online watching. But I want to challenge you, regardless of where you're seated, in this room, online, in some coffee shop somewhere, or across the street, or across the hall, in the video cafe, if you're going to trust Christ as your Savior in just a minute, would you just raise your hand? Acknowledge that's true. You can stick it up high. I see a couple of people putting your hands up low. Stick your hand up high like you're telling God, I'm, I want to pray. I want to ask you to be my Savior. And for those of you who are believers in Jesus, what does it mean to have that identity for you? What relationship does he desire for you to reconcile? Let's pray about that. Father, I come before you. I pray right now for anyone who needs to become a new creation, that you'd give them a new identity right now, that you'd transform their lives. You'd give them a new beginning with you for anyone who needs that new beginning. I pray that they would pray this prayer with me. And you can just pray these words in your heart or out loud if you want as you sit in your seat. Dear God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I confess my sin to you. And I believe your son Jesus died for that sin and that you rose him from the dead. And you just pray those words in your heart. And right now, I ask Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. And if you just prayed that, then the Bible says that all of heaven rejoices with you. And I just ask before you leave today on your connection card, you just let us know that you prayed that prayer. And Father, I pray for those that are believers in you, that we would greatly rejoice in the identity that you've given us and, and the calling that you've given us and the ministry of reconciliation that you've handed to us. But God, we need reconciliation too. We need a new beginning. We're so thankful your mercies are new every moment. We need to repent. We continually sin and we just repent and we want to be re-reconciled with you. And Father God, as we, you reconcile us and make us new and you keep making us new and you keep sanctifying us, God, I pray you'd use us. Reconcile relationships that need to be reconciled in the lives and the hearts of believers here today. Help us to reconcile other people to you. I pray as they see us live those lives of reconciliation, that people will be drawn to you and drawn to your gospel. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.